0: Good morning. Happy New Year. I think it's only fitting that the morning we serve you eggs and sausage and pancakes and stuff that we tell you, now you can't go to the bathroom. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's like, what, what's the irony in that? You know what I mean? What a way to start the New Year. Hey, I'm, uh, my name's Kevin Russell. I'm the Groups and making pastor, and I am excited to be here with you. It's exciting. It's, it's kind of, I feel a little honored to be sharing the first few hours of a brand new year with you and at the very least I'm excited to be sharing a a message with you today that was very personally encouraging for me this week and uh, I hope it's encouraging for you as well and I I think it's the perfect message for us to start out our new year with. If you have your Bibles and and you like to follow along or or maybe follow along on your phone I'm going to give you two places to turn to. Matthew chapter 26 and Exodus chapter 12. Hold both of those chapters open. We're going to start... In Matthew 26, and then we're going to jump back to Exodus 12. We're going to spend a good portion of time there for a few minutes, and then we're going to actually come back again and finish in Matthew 26. Before we dive in, would you, would you pray with me? I'd love to pray for our, our, uh, the rest of our morning, and would love for you to join me. Father, thank you so much uh, for loving us and uh, for sending your son, Jesus, to rescue us, to die on the cross for our sins. Uh, I'm thankful for what you're doing in this church family. And uh, I trust, Lord, that you have something to do here this morning. I trust that over the next half hour, 45 minutes, Lord, that, that you have something to say to each one of us. And so would you do that, Lord? Would you speak to us this morning? Would you open our ears and help us to hear your voice? Would you open our hearts? Help us to know you better, Lord. I just pray you pour out your spirit on us here this morning. And I pray ultimately, Jesus, that you're glorified. I ask this in your name. Amen. About once a month, here at Genesis, we set aside time to take communion. And we pass out these two little cups. And uh, one of them has a little cracker in it. And one of them has a little bit of grape juice. And we partake as a church family in communion. But have you ever wondered why we take communion? I mean, have you ever wondered... What's the meaning of communion? What's the purpose? What are we doing? What's the point? What are we saying with communion? What's the message and the meaning of communion? That's kind of the question that I want to try to answer today. Now, the short answer is this that we take communion to remember that through Jesus' blood shed on the cross, we've been reconciled to God. And depending on your background, maybe you grew up in a church that called communion a sacrament, or you grew up calling communion an ordinance. Or maybe you didn't call it communion at all. Maybe, maybe you called it Eucharist, the Eucharist. And chances are, even if you didn't grow up in a church, chances are you've heard about the Last Supper. In fact, one of the most famous paintings in history is The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. Here it is. This painting was painted on a wall in Milan, Italy in 1495. 1495. It's been said that da Vinci was trying to capture the moment when Jesus told his disciples that one of them would betray him. This, this painting is supposed to capture the reactions at the Last Supper when Jesus says, when are you going to betray me? Now, it's such a famous painting. Uh, it's been parried, uh, parried countless times. It's been made fun of. You'll see different, let's see some different uh, paintings here. You'll see, um, um, there you go. You've seen them with the dogs. You've seen one. You've seen, uh, The Last Supper with superheroes. Some of you, this is a big deal for you. Uh, maybe you've seen one with uh, Legos. How about the Legos? There we go. I like that. I like how their hair, that, look, that looks like about right, you know what I mean? Looks good. Uh, maybe you've seen one with Star Wars characters. <laughs> While we love Star Wars, it's not actually part of the biblical story. Just want you all to know that. Some of you need to be reminded of that. How about a famous cartoon family? Okay, there we go. That may be the most blasphemous of them all. But it was here at the Last Supper where Jesus initiated this communion for the very first time. Here's what I want you to do with me. I want you to imagine that you're one of the disciples sitting here with Jesus. And you're eating And you're talking, and the mood is solemn, and it's serious, and you know something is unique about this night. And while you're eating, Jesus interrupts the conversation, and everyone quiets down to listen to what Jesus has to say. And you hear Jesus say these words out of Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 and 28. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, "'Take and eat. This is my body.'" Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is, the, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus takes some bread, and he gives thanks, and he gives it to you, and he gives it to the disciples, and he says, Eat this. And then he takes a cup, and he gives thanks, and he gives it to you, and he gives it to his disciples, and says, Drink this. Let me ask you this. What thoughts would be running through your mind in that moment? What are you hearing Jesus say? What's the message that you hear Jesus communicating to you? See, we have the advantage of knowing the rest of the story, right? We know that Jesus is talking about dying on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. But what were the disciples thinking? What did this mean for them? Because Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet... And they certainly didn't fully understand what was going to happen in the coming hours and the coming days. And so for the disciples sitting there that night, they didn't call it the Last Supper. It wasn't the Last Supper for them. They didn't call it the Communion or the Eucharist. For the disciples, it was Passover. It was the Passover meal. In fact, let's back up a few verses earlier in Matthew chapter 26 to verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, this is the first day of Passover week, okay? So it's the first day of the week. Passover happens on Thursday evening. On the first day of the week of of Passover, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Hey, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Well, go into the city to a certain man and tell him the teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. And so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Jesus says here, catch this, Jesus says, I'm going to celebrate the Passover With my disciples, for the disciples, they're just simply celebrating Passover with Jesus. Now, to better understand communion, we have to understand what what Passover is. What is Passover, and what does Passover have to do with what Jesus was saying here? And what does Passover have to do with us taking communion? We're going to take communion at the end of the service today. Well, you may remember that the Passover is the night when God rescued the Israelites, the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. You remember this? The Israelites are slaves in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh, and God calls Moses to go rescue them. But the question is, why were the Israelites in slavery in the first place? How did the Israelites end up as slaves in in, in Egypt? Well, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 to the fall, okay? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2... God paints a picture where he creates man and woman and he pursues this intimate relationship with Adam and Eve. He wants a kind of close, loving relationship that a father has with his children. And God interacts with them and he walks with them and he talks with Adam and Eve and he shows personal concern for them and he takes responsibility to provide for their needs. And Adam and Eve are pictured as living with their creator and they get to experience this unhindered intimacy with their father, this unhindered communion with their father. And they depend on God to guide their life. They trust him to meet their needs. They find their identity and their purpose and their relationship with their creator and their father. And so Adam and Eve are close to God and they're living in communion with God. But then something happens, right? Satan steps in and he lies to them and he tempts them. And he tells them that they don't need to depend on God. They don't need to uh, trust God. In fact, they can live separate from God. They don't need to uh, have a close relationship with God. They don't need that communion with God. I just to remind you today that the temptation that Adam and Eve face is the temptation that you and I face every day. You y'all. Know, the world tells us, you don't need God. We fall, in the t- in- we fall into the temptation and we believe the lie that we can find life apart from our creator. That we can find life apart from our source of life. That's the fundamental nature of sin and that's the temptation we face every day. And the Bible defines this sin, this living separate from God, as death. It leads to death. Living separate and independent of God leads to death. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve fell for the lie, and they chose to live independently, and they separated themselves from him, and this is what we call the fall. And there's two things I want you to, two quick lessons, or I'm going to, it's one lesson said two different ways. I want you to see this. Their sin broke their close relationship with God. Adam and Eve's sin broke their close relationship with God. Or another way to say it is this. They lost their closeness or their communion with God. They lost their closeness with God. Let me ask you this. How close to God do you feel today? I mean, not just this morning while you're sitting here. I mean, you're still digesting breakfast. In this season of life, where you are right now in your life, how close to God are you? Would you, would you, would you be able to say, I'm close to God, I feel far from God, I'm, I'm kind of close to God, I, have, I go back and forth? God designed us for communion. But ultimately, our sin separates us and breaks that communion, and we lose that closeness and commun- communion with God. And so Adam and Eve, they, they lose this communion, they, 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 their closeness is severed, and there's this distance now, there's this alienation, and, and God wants the relationship, though. God wants the communion, so what, God, what does God do? God sets, in plan, uh, 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 sets a plan in motion, uh, a plan of reconciliation. And if you fast forward to Genesis chapter 12, the, the plan of reconciliation really gets going, and it's when God calls Abram, or later he's going to be called Abraham. And God goes to Abraham, and he makes Abraham this amazing promise. Remember this? He promises Abraham what? That he's going to make Abraham into a great nation. God promises Abraham, this one guy, that he's going to make him into a nation of people. How does that happen? Well, the short version is that Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Uh, Jacob had a son named Joseph. Jacob had actually 12 sons. One of them was Joseph. And so Abraham has 12 great-grandsons. And Joseph and his brothers, Abraham's great-grandsons, and their families make up a total of about 70 people. And this family of 70 end up living in Egypt. It's a fascinating story. We've talked about it from time to time here at Genesis. If you've never read it, go check it out in the book of Exodus, I mean the book of Genesis. In any case, over the years, this family of 70 grows so numerous it turns into a people group, right? And their people group is called the Israelites. And here's how Exodus chapter 1 explains what happened to Joseph and his 11 brothers, Abraham's descendants, Abraham's family in in Egypt. Exodus chapter 1 verse 6 says this. Look, he said to his people, this is Pharaoh speaking, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us, Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave, our, leave the country. So they, the Egyptians, the Egyptians put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Just keep going. Is that it? No, that's not it. Uh, I'll keep going. <laughs> but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. There we go. The more they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruth- ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So Abraham's 12 great-grandsons... And their their family of 70, the Israelites, are fruitful and they multiply and become so numerous that the land is filled with them. Egypt is filled with them. And so this new Pharaoh gets worried about them. He gets concerned that they're going to take over and so he enslaves them. He enslaves them. That's how the Israelites become slaves in Egypt. And they're there for over 400 years Well, eventually the enslaved Israelites cry out to God to save them. And God answers their cry by raising up a man named Moses. You've probably heard of him. And God appears to Moses at the burning bush, right? And God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and demand that he lets the Israelites go. And God sends 10 plagues on Egypt. 10 plagues. And each time the message from God to Pharaoh, the Egyptian leader, through Moses is simply this. "Let Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. After each of the nine... First nine plagues, Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go. Then the tenth and final plague comes. And this is the one, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. This is the one that does Pharaoh in. The tenth plague was the death plague. It happened on the night of Passover. So now we're all the way back up to Passover. Exodus chapter 12 records the account of Passover. Now here's what happens. God is going to communicate this to Moses. He's going to communicate the plans to Moses. And he's going to tell Moses what he wants him to do and what he wants the Israelites to do for Passover. Follow along as I read in Exodus chapter 12. God tells Moses, this is God speaking to Moses, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. I want you to notice how he's given very specific details. Having taken into account the number of people there, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat, okay? The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Let's keep going. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So he's saying, hey, listen, I want you to get a lamb, I want you to take it in your household, I want you to take care of it until the 14th day of the month it's actually the 10th day 14th five days take it in your home take care of it for five days and at the end of five days i want you what i want you to do i want you to slaughter the lamb at twilight okay keep that in mind then they're to take some of the blood of that lamb and they put it on the sides of the tops of the door and the frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. So put on the door frames door post around the door that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire. And so they're now they're going to take the blood, put it on the doorpost, and they're going, to eat the, they're going to eat. They're going to eat the lamb themselves. Along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Verse 12. On that same night I will pass through Egypt. Here we go. This is God speaking. I'll pass through Egypt, and I'll strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. See, the 10 plagues, God was showing Pharaoh and all the false gods who the real God is. And he was saying, I am the Lord. I'm the one true God. And here's what, here's what God says to Moses. Here we go, here we go. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's Passover. No destruction, no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day, here we go, now this is what God tells Moses, this is a day you are to commemorate for generations to come. You shall celebrate this as a festival to the, lasting, uh, of, as a vessel to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So God tells Moses what he wants him to do on this, on this, on this night of the Passover, when he's going to send the 10th flag. But when he gives him in the instructions, he also tells him, now I want you to do this for a long, long time. I want you to do this for generations, this is not something we're just going to do tonight. This is going to something we're going to do tonight. But we're going to do it for generations to come. Now, here's what I want you to see, a few lessons. Number one: the Israelites, the Israelites were saved by faith in the blood of the Lamb. I want you to think about this. Their faith that night was resting in the blood that was on the doorpost. I can't imagine what it would be like to be a dad with my family sitting in that household that night. I've got three children. I can't imagine sitting there with my wife and my three children, and there's death and destruction all around me. There's chaos happening. There's weeping and wailing in houses all around me. People's firstborns are dying. It also said the firstborn of animals are dying. So, I mean, death is everywhere, and I'm sitting with my children in my house, and I'm just concerned about my firstborn. Can you imagine the anxiety? Can you imagine the nervousness? And what what is my faith in as I sit there with my family in the darkness, hearing all the weeping and the wailing and death all around me? What's what's my faith in? My faith is in that blood that's on the doorpost. All of my faith, every ounce of my faith is in that that blood is going to somehow save my firstborn and save ultimately my family. They were saved by faith in the blood of the Lamb. The second thing I want you to realize is this, that God rescued them from slavery because he wanted, because it was part of his plan to restore his relationship with them, to reconcile them. And number three, I want you to know this, God commands them to eat the Passover meal every year to remember what he had done, to remember what he had done. And for over 1,400 years, the Israelites will celebrate the Passover meal to remember that God had rescued them out of slavery into freedom through the blood of the lamb. Sound familiar? But it wasn't just a looking backward, it was also a looking forward. See, the Passover was pointing them to a lamb that would one day take away the sins of the world. And for about 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah says this in chapter 23 about Jesus. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Listen, each of us has turned to our own way. What's he saying? Isaiah is saying each of us are just like Adam and Eve. All of us are just like Adam and Eve. We've all turned to our own way. We all live our own independent, separate lives. We've all been alienated. All of our communion, our closeness with God has been broken because of our sin. But the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all, speaking of Jesus, He was oppressed and afflicted, Jesus was, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. That was 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah prophesied, about the Passover lamb that was coming one day. Now let's fast forward to when Jesus does come. He's born, we celebrate that the last month. And about you, I'm glad Christmas is over. If anybody wants to come help me take down my Christmas lights today, who has Christmas lights for taking down today? Anybody? Yeah. Uh, Where are we? Okay, so he, he's born, he grows up, and about the age of 30, Jesus officially begins his ministry. And then John the Baptist, like the prophets before him, He was pointing people toward Jesus, and John the Baptist had this unique privilege of being the last prophet who would get to introduce Jesus to the world. And here's what Jesus, here's what John the Baptist said about Jesus in John 1.29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' ministry lasts a little more than three and a half years. It's three and a half years in after John introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God is when we find Jesus at the end of his ministry during the week of Passover. I want you to make I just want to make a few connections that happened the week of Passover leading up to the last supper. On the first day of the Passover week, each Israelite family would choose a lamb that first day. And the lamb had to be a young male in its first year of life and they were to take it in their home for 5 days and they were to examine it for 5 days. And make sure that the lamb was without blemish. Then at the end of the week, the lamb was taken up to the tabernacle. The lamb was tied to a wooden stake around 9 a.m. And left there all day until, about, until 3 p.m. And at exactly 3 p.m., the high priest would go to the tabernacle, would grab the lamb, and slit its throat. And the lamb would be sacrificed at 3 p.m. And then... The high priest would turn around, turn to the people, and with his arms spread out, he would yell, it is finished. Sound familiar? What day did Jesus enter Jerusalem on the donkey? Anybody know? First day of Passover week. The day when the lamb was being chosen and families, Jesus was chosen. He entered entered Israel. They enter Jerusalem. You remember what happened for five days during the Passover week to Jesus? Go look in the gospel accounts. He was examined by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law several times. They questioned him. They accused him. They examined him for five days, but they found no fault in him. Jesus then eats the Passover meal with his disciples. He's arrested late in the evening. And most people don't realize this, but Jesus' quote-unquote trial with Caiaphas, the high priest, and Pontius Pilate happened early, early in the wee hours of the morning. So he's arrested late at night, and then the trial happens in just a few hours. It's rushed around. We don't usually put that together, but let's just say somewhere between midnight and 8 a.m. Jesus, in that eight-hour period, goes through the whole trial, goes through the whole process. And then scholars and historians suggest it was precisely at 9 a.m. Just the time when the lamb at the temple was being tied to a wooden stake, it was 9 a.m. just outside the city gates when Jesus was nailed to the cross. And they suggest it was precisely 3 p.m. as the high priest killed the lamb at the top of the, of the ramp in the tabernacle. And as he cried out, it is finished, wasn't too far away about 3 p.m., when Jesus breathed his last, last breath and said, it is finished. The final sacrifice, the true lamb, died for you and me. He died for your sins and mine. What's the message and meaning of communion? It's Colossians 1.20, that we've been reconciled to God through Jesus' blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that, that God no longer counts our sins against us in Christ, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be forgiven and become the righteousness of God. What's the message and meaning of communion? When we take communion, we're saying that our creator, our father, our savior, and our Lord, Jesus, has reconciled our broken relationship for us. And that you and I now have the freedom to be close to God again. That we can restore that communion. We can have that close loving relationship with him. When we take communion, we are remembering his death. We're giving thanks for his love for us. We're looking forward to the day when God will finish restoring all things. When, when for all eternity, together, we will once again live and dwell in perfect communion with our creator. That's why we take communion. And so that's what we're going to take communion today. Josh is going to come out and play some music. And invite our invite the host team forward to pass out communion. As we do that today, I want to give you three things I want you to specifically remember together as we take communion. Number one, I want you to remember Jesus on the cross. Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. The fundamental action, the thing that we actually are doing in communion is remembering. So as we do the physical act of eating and drinking, we're also commanded to G, by Jesus to do the mental act of remembering. Listen, don't just let your mind wander during communion. That's not, if you let your mind wander during communion and just kind of eat the bread and drink the juice without thinking, you're not, really, you're not really, you're not getting what it was meant to be, what communion was meant to be about. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Actually take your thoughts For a moment, and think about Jesus dying on the cross for you. It's not just a story. It was a real moment in real time, in real space over 2,000 years ago. So number one, remember that Jesus died on the cross. Number two, say thank you. Say thank you. Give God thanks. I want to specifically encourage you to consider thanking God for the specific people, people and circumstances that he used to lead you to salvation. What's your story? What's your testimony? How did you become a Christian? How did you put your faith and trust in Christ? What were the circumstances and the people God used to lead you to Christ? Thank God for that. Take time during communion. Remember that he died on the cross for you. Think about the cross. Imagine Jesus on the cross. Number two, thank him for your salvation and specifically how he led you and brought you salvation. And number three, tell the Lord this, I look forward to being with you. I look forward to being with you. So our goal is not to go to heaven. Our goal is to be with Jesus. And that's why we want to go to heaven. You may have heard the quote before if heaven had everything you ever wanted, no more sin, and no more pain, and no more sorrow, no more suffering, and nothing but blessings, if heaven had all of that, but Jesus wasn't there, would you still want to go? He is the reason why we celebrate communion, because we want that original communion that we saw pictured in Genesis 1 and 2 with Adam and Eve. We want to see God restore that communion. We want to one day, once again, be with God. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says this, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, so communion is not only looking backwards and remembering the cross and saying, thank you for saving me, but communion is also looking forward. Because we're saying to him, I can't wait to be with you. I look forward to the day when you return. It's a reminder that Jesus is coming back and one day he'll set everything right and we'll be with him in heaven and we'll be his people and he'll be our God and we'll have this eternal intimacy with him, this eternal communion with him and we'll sit together as Revelation says at the wedding supper of the Lamb. One day we're going to have a real meal, not some somewhat lame cracker and little cup of juice. We're going to have a real feast and Jesus will be there and we'll celebrate with him again at the wedding supper of the Lamb. So today, to remember Jesus' words in Matthew 26. And remember that he died on the cross for us. Give him thanks. And tell him that you look forward to being with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for loving us and for dying on the cross for our sins. Romans 5, 8 says this, what well, God, while we were still sinners, you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm thankful, Lord, that you wanted that communion with us, you wanted that restored relationship I pray Lord that even right now as we take communion in the next couple of minutes as we remember the cross, as we give thanks as we look forward to your return I pray Lord that you would do a fresh work in our heart today and help us to really grasp and have a heart of gratitude for what you did for us Jesus it's in your name I pray Amen